Thank you for listening to Ivy Podcast, where we feature weekly leadership conversations with thought leaders and industry experts. Now, here is your host, John Karsibayev. My name is Rob Cassis. I've been in the travel industry for over 30 years, leading the efforts of great travel brands in the e-commerce space. Awesome, Rob. Thanks so much for finding time to join us on the Avi Podcast today. Very excited. I know we've been playing this for quite some time. Tell us a little bit about your background, you know, career-wise, where you come from, and then want to spend a few minutes talking about some of the latest trends. Absolutely. Thanks, John. Good to be here. Uh, My career started back in uh, 1988, uh, and I went to work for Delta Airlines right after I graduated from school, college. And my first few years were field operational roles, working at airports, call centers, and so forth. So my involvement in digital started back in the mid-90s when I was given responsibility for overseeing the Delta Shuttle ATMs. Delta Shuttle, as, as you may know, is the, uh, the shuttle service that Delta has between New York, Boston, New York, and Washington. Very uh, much uh, high transaction and uh, speed is a, was of essence. So back then it was one of the first platforms that enabled uh, instantaneous point of sale reservation transactions as, as passengers boarded their flights. So that uh, went on to uh, other projects like the introduction of boarding pass readers in the uh, mid to late 90s and really sort of set me up for then going to work uh, in the company's, uh, on the company's fledgling website, which at the time was known as Skylinks, and of course would eventually become Delta.com, and where I spent the remaining years at, at Delta until I left at the end of 2001. Uh, in 2002, I took a year off to back back around the world, and then uh, in 2003, I went back to work for a tour operator that operated Delta Vacations, and, the, and at the time, uh, Continental Airlines Vacations, and I was the head of e-commerce there. So I joined Norwegian Cruise Line in the fall of 2006. And along with my predecessor, we created the e-commerce organization at Norwegian with oversight overall strategy operations, site development, and the direct online channel sales. Uh, been there, was there for 13 years. I formally left the company in March of last year. And with the pandemic starting to take root and along the way, uh, decided, uh, that it was a good time for me to take time off and uh, spend time at home with family. Along the way, I have uh, treated my travel and hospitality routes. I made some investments in the lake resort area that my wife and I started and now run in South Central Michigan. And it's also the place where we spend, spend our summers. Uh, beyond that, I'm also a, uh, an advisory board member for Uplift, a financial tech company that is exclusively focused in the travel industry. So. Those things uh, have, have, you know, get me uh, busy at home, and uh, and I look forward in 2021 to continuing to interact and network, and as opportunities come up, uh, see if they make sense. That's excellent. Thanks for sharing that background. Um, so you have, you know, pretty extensive backgrounds, you know, in travel, e-commerce industry in general, and. Tell us a little bit more about what are the different trends and ideas that you're very passionate about that you think will be the next big thing. What are you looking to invest in? What are you researching? Any insights you can share with us? Uh, I would be. I would love to hear that. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, you know, what comes to mind uh, at the moment is, you know, as horrible as this pandemic has been for the world and particularly for our nation, I, I think one of the outcomes uh, obviously has been the accelerated boom in e-commerce as folks have opted for online transactions, right? Instead of going to the store. Um, so this has surged demand for companies really to invest heavily in their e-commerce operations, especially in the retail uh, businesses. In, the, in, you know, in, in restaurant and groceries, um, online food platform deliveries have taken off. We use them extensively in our household. And, and fortunately, they've, they've been able to provide a lifeline for a lot of these businesses to stay viable. So I, I think if you sort of look at the, uh, at the, at the in industry in recent uh, times, uh, we're probably in the neighborhood of about $5 trillion a year in online sales, right, uh, in, in the coming year. And if you sort of go back seven years or so, that's about 300% growth, huge uh, exponential growth. And uh, which of course uh, in the last year is nothing but accelerated. And you know, a lot of that is, is coming from mobile, right? We, we've had steady double digit growth in mobile for a number of years now, uh, prior to the pandemic. And today it accounts for the majority of e-commerce sales. So, you know, those are obvious things. And with mobile, let's face it, we have a new generation of shoppers that exclusively transact on their phones and that's only gonna to continue to grow. So, and then, then let's not forget digital voice assistants like Alexa that enable ordering um, right from your kitchen counter. So those are uh, positive uh, trends that I think make uh, investments in e-commerce even more important than ever before. I think the awareness impact from social media is also something that continues to create um, opportunities, especially for smaller evolving brands, right? If you uh, think about the, the cost to start up a business um, where you have no awareness uh, and what that opportunity is like now, more than half of, of for example, young consumers are transacting really with uh, what are otherwise smaller independent brands, but um, those are brands that they discover from their social media feeds and engage with them. So I think that's exciting if you're an entrepreneur or have a startup business that doesn't have a large budget to advertise uh, your products and services. I think that that ability to be discovered through social uh, has, has just, especially in the last year, uh, exploded. There's also what I think are, are great trends in automation, uh, particularly around um, organizational efficiency, right? So uh, things that make teams much more productive, um, robotic process automation, RPA, is really starting to take hold in a lot of areas and are enabling really uh, routine manual tasks that took time away from more important things. So more specifically, I think uh, folks like BI analysts can now automate much of their data processes and that leaves them uh, you know, more time for what's really important, which is their insights analysis. Um, you know, RPA is also able to efficiently harvest a large amount of structured and unstructured data mm -hmm. that lives offsite. So what that means really for brands that are, are well known and have huge amounts of user generated content uh, circulating around the internet, uh, you know, in the form of, for example, reviews, images, blogs, videos, et cetera, it gives them, gives the ability to capture that information and synthesize it into, you know, personalized content recommendations or even just this critical feedback loop for your internal uh, optimization teams 
uh, and it can do that at scale. So that's that's huge. That's very powerful. Um, you know, I think about call centers uh, and, you know, internally the ability for companies to sort of harness uh, these natural conversations that their uh, representatives or agents have with, with their customers and how that information can really generate a tremendous amount of, of knowledge and data that an RPA system can harvest using, you know, transcription technology and data processing. So those are really um, evolving um, trends that just make the whole ecosystem that much more impactful and uh, I think have a lot of um, growth and opportunity. Right, absolutely. No, I'm definitely excited about these trends. And you've been in airline industry, uh, cruise line industry from from your from you know based on your background. Um, wh- what do you think is the next thing for just for for travel industry in general? Obviously, they've been you know hit pretty hard during the pandemic. Um, what 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 are your predictions for that? And also, what would be your recommendations for companies that are in this space to you know to adapt, evolve, and succeed? Yeah, absolutely. Um, first of all, you know, for for brands in the travel space, and you know, obviously, I've I've got a background in the airline industry as well as the cruise lines, which have been decimated. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the last year or so, um, yeah. I, I think, first of all, the good news is that eventually we'll get back to uh, being able to, to do the things we did before in terms of travel and, you know, taking cruises and, and flights. I mean, obviously, the airlines are already uh, starting to fill airplanes. Uh, you know, they, they've invested heavily in, uh, you know, their uh, cabin um you know, air quality, they've, you know, put some strict regulations around mask wearing and so forth. Uh, it, it's a little bit more difficult uh, in with cruises. Obviously, you're not strapped to a seat and people roam around. But I think, uh, you know, we're, we're going to get there, whether it's through uh, eventually getting the vaccination to provide a sort of immunity. So eventually, we're going to get there. Um, but for those brands and the opportunity of getting there, there are a number of evolving technologies that are that are really focused on the product experience, especially bringing that product experience to life. And this has been a, a big hurdle for many. Um, for many, as really seeing the product in the store firsthand has always been essential to the purchase process, right? So, in the cruise industry where I last came from, for example, consumers are really purchasing an experience. Uh, and when you add to that the huge amount of first-time cruisers that comprise a typical cruise that ability for them to visualize those vacation moments during the consideration process becomes incredibly powerful. So with that, I think the introduction of things like augmented reality, um, that's one example of a promising technology that can, I think, significantly enhance that experience online. Um, Of course, there are other visual e-commerce experiences that are uh, becoming more pervasive uh, on online store shops, such as consumer-generated media, interactive content, particularly engaging product videos. So, you know, I think when you can take those visual experiences, particularly with the evolving um, capabilities of AI, you can exponentially increase your capability to capture, excite, retain those eyeballs, particularly if that AI platform is capable of machine learning. So these are things that are not necessarily new big ideas. Uh, You know, I I think, those new big ideas are, are sort of usually, um, 
you know, manifest themselves into more traditional ways. But I think what we are seeing already from things that have been happening in the last year or two that haven't been quite ready are becoming now more capable and more uh, able to take mainstream uh, uh, platforms and take them to that next level. So visual, you know, to summarize visual uh, product merchandising and the ability to power that in a more personalized way through AI platforms, while not the next big idea, it's just really becoming now um, uh, really uh, fruitful and, and uh, able to sort of you know, be taken advantage of. Right, right, absolutely. No, that's very interesting. And, you know, it's when you go through, you know, that almost that, you know, perseverance mode when, when you get hit with crisis as such, um, you know, definitely strategies, strategies shift. And as we, you know, we look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, we, we tend to shift to the bottom where we revert to kind of the basic needs, the kind of the safety and all of that. So when it comes to innovation, especially during, you know, during the difficult times, it, it's not necessarily a top of priority, but at the same time, it's also a great opportunity to innovate, to come up with different ways of doing things. So curious to get your take on perspective as far as companies being innovative during the crisis. So during, during the difficult times, how do you foster that? How do you build that type of culture that even during, you know, during the very difficult times, you still keep that as a priority. You still, you know, you don't stop innovating. You don't stop experimenting. You continue to evolve. You continue to make things better. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, great, great question. So, um, first of all, I think when you come from large established brands, you know, there's there's um, always certain limitations you work with that exist, right? That that make that um, ability to innovate uh, sometimes challenging. When you start up something from scratch, obviously you, you many times have a blank canvas and innovation, uh, particularly when you have uh, smaller, uh, highly collaborative teams. Um, you know, become become the culture. So I think, uh, you know, speaking from someone who largely has spent time with larger brands, it starts really with empowering your teams to own their actions, really, and, and give them the tools and flexibility to innovate. And, and you know, first, of course, you, you've got to ensure that everyone understands what the objectives are and how all the outcomes need to align to those objectives. So once everyone is grounded in that and, and specifically where the goal line is, I think it's important to collaboratively work to shape the specific strategies that will get the team there. So basically everyone needs to be in on it. I think with that framework in place, uh, you foster a competitive spirit that gives everyone the ability to participate regardless really of their specific roles. Everyone should be a customer advocate. That being said, I, I think there's, uh, in order to create a culture of innovation, in my, in my opinion, you first need to develop a culture of experimentation. Uh, you know, incorporate uh, into the routines of your team members the freedom and the time to experiment, right? This is something that highly innovative companies like Google have done successfully for years. Um, Jim Collins, who has authored some great business management books, including uh, one good to great that I read a number of years ago, wrote another book called The Turning, Turning the Flywheel, I think. And he... Um, the, 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 the phrase fire bullets first and then cannonballs, which you may be familiar with, which of course illustrates this concept of testing small and often before making your large investments uh, to scale. 
So of course, you know, early testing experimentation have been around a long time, but in digital space and with large amounts of traffic coming online, um, the ability to test and quickly get results uh, are, are, are really there um, and make rapid optimization possible. Mm -hmm. So with that notion, I think it's also important that you let your teams know that you, you expect failures, right? Right. It's impossible to innovate with ha without having failed uh, a number of times. So that they need to be aware of that uh, and not fear. And in fact, if they're not failing, then, then they're not doing something right. Uh, and then lastly, I think um, uh, you need to recognize and reward success, right? It can be as simple as letting these team members present, present their ideas and successes directly to other company executives. That, that has always worked well for me and, and, and my teams. Um, and I think you know, another key element to fostering innovation is uh, ensuring that your, your folks have the ability to engage uh, outside of your organization with, with peers, right? I've seen uh, companies work in somewhat siloed environments where team members seldom have the opportunity to connect with others mm -hmm. that have similar roles, right? One of the things I've always encouraged on my teams was for everyone to research uh, conferences, industry events that are coming up in the year and to take the time to prioritize their potential value to our organization, uh, really by sort of digging into the, the, the relevancy of the tracks and the presentations and how they align with our strategies and objectives. And, and also really uh, vet feedback from past attendees. You know, I, I've given, always given everyone an opportunity to attend at least one conference a year that align you know, with their respective roles. And I found that by letting them prioritize for themselves, they really took the time to review the potential substance and the value that the industry conferences uh, bring. And as a result, they've come back much more engaged. Uh, their ability to connect and share ideas with others has grown uh, significantly. And you know, I, I refer to it as uh, this innovation energy. So I think those are some, some elements of, of, of of ways that you can foster innovation, whether you're, you know, a startup or, or a large brand that um, can sometimes be somewhat set in their ways. Right. Absolutely. No, that that makes perfect sense, especially you know when when we look at um, from a, from a standpoint of you know the the whole aspect of failure that it's not necessarily you know a failed experiment or a failed you know innovation. It's more of an opportunity to 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 learn. It's an opportunity to do things better. And at the end of the day, it's an experiment. It's, you know, trial and error, looking for different ways to do things. So I, I can absolutely resonate um, and relate to a lot of things that you were talking about as far as those strategies. So thanks for sharing that. Yeah, no, that's great. That's, that's so absolutely true, John. Yeah. And from kind of from different perspective, when we look at, you know, the, the kind of the companies going through difficult times and, you know, the, the downsizing and, you know, the, the, you know, what a lot of organizations experienced last year, as far as attracting and retaining the top talent becomes, you know, a different, different perspective. And for organizations to, especially for executives, you know, surrounding yourself with top, you know, with, with winners and A plus players, it's, it's at the top of their mind, 24 seven all the time. So what, what's your outlook into some of the strategies that would really help teams, executives uh, to attract the top talent, you know, to their teams during, during uh, difficult times as such? 
Yeah, uh, it, it's very competitive out there. And, um, you know, especially with the growth that we've seen in uh, e-commerce, uh, e even more of a challenge today to find top talent. I think, um, you know, first of all, uh, work internally to, to make sure it's a culture that is attractive uh, to, to future candidates, to prospective folks, right? Uh, that's really important. Um, there's, there's a large corporate culture that you sort of work within, but I think um, leaders have the ability to sort of shape their microcultures. And, and for, for me and my teams, it's been one that uh, has been important in the sense of, you know, allowing folks the freedom to sort of um, own and be uh, accountable, um, you know, own their, their, their responsibilities to, to sort of be highly collaborative to uh, never be afraid to share the truth. Uh, that, that's really important. Uh, th there is, you know, uh, while there's uh, hierarchical makeups to our, our teams, at the end of the day, we approach it from a, everyone is on the same level playing field. Everyone's opinion is equal. And I think that just in itself is important as you sort of work to attract new talent because at some point, first of all, let's face it, they're going to um, come across people, especially when you work for larger brands that have worked there, and they're going to get a sense uh, outside of any uh, interviews you have of what it's like to work there. So, you know, getting that sort of uh, culture set, uh, I think, is important for the future of, of your ability to sort of attract. But going back to your question, I think some of the same techniques that digital marketers use to drive you know, qualified users to their sites, mm -hmm. I think are applicable to the initial recruitment phase, particularly when you tap into the capabilities of, of their social network. I mean, let's face it, who doesn't have a profile on LinkedIn, right? It's a huge resource of who's who, uh, and, you know, it comes with your general background and capabilities, but the ability for, for you to search for specific job titles, skill sets, and even filter down to geographic locations is a good way to start uh, your search for talent. I mean, obviously, uh, HR departments already do this. Uh, I know at Norwegian uh, they were doing this, but the business areas that are hiring um, also should be doing this, right? Your network is rich. Um, and, you know, your ability to sort of message your connections with your hiring needs, um, you know, we've had good success with that in past years, and it's a great way for your connections to then forward on your opportunities that are outside of your immediate network. Um, and then, you know, once you've identified candidates, I think, again, it becomes a wonderful resource to connect with, you know, former managers, former colleagues of that candidate uh, uh, that you do during your vetting process. So um, those, those are, um, you know, obvious, but I, I don't know that everyone's still doing it. And it's, I've, I've just had such great success with that. Uh, another good source has been referrals from outside business partners and agencies that you work with. I mean, they already understand your business and they know your culture and they have a leg up on um, candidates in those fields that, uh, that have a fit uh, for, for what you do and what you need. So that, that has always been a good source of referrals and, and a good way to sort of recruit and attack, uh, attract talent, I should say. Right. Absolutely. No, I, I love the, you know, I love some of these strategies that you're talking about when it comes to attracting, you know, talent, especially when, you know, the competition is so high and, you know, unfortunately a lot of very talented, very highly qualified folks, you know, had to, had to pivot and look for different other opportunities. And that also opens up kind of, you know, 
many doors for opportunities to get into different other industries or different other, you know, types of roles within, you know, different sectors. So that's very exciting. Um, from a standpoint of kind of the, that you've been in, in, in this industry for a while as, you know, as a thought leader in terms of developing a particular skill set, or, or kind of what's, what's in demand out there in terms of a particular, you know, skill that a you know in professional can possess. The reason I ask this question is because a good portion of our listeners on the podcast are early stage career professionals, recent grads, you know, second year MBAs, and so forth. And a lot of questions that we get from them is, you know, hey, with you know, with the current trends, with the current outlook into the market and industry, what are you guys seeing? What are what are your recommendations in terms of investing, you know, a little bit more as far as developing a particular skill set or a set of skill sets? So curious to get your take on that. Yeah, uh, you know, one of the things that that have always been um, in large demand and challenging um, sometimes to recruit, uh, especially with um, businesses that are sort of um, aggregating a lot of information, is really uh, experienced analytics professionals who can can have who have the ability to harvest and, and disseminate you know multiple source data into actionable insights. That that is a a talent that is highly sought after for obvious reasons. And, um, you know, one that um, if, if, if you don't have those kind of folks on your team, you really need to figure out a way to bring them in. So that one uh, quickly comes to mind. Um, and then with all the, all the displays that are, display UIs that are out there, you know, mobile, uh, obviously website, voice, all that, you really need to start thinking about um, ensuring that you have folks who have the capability um, to understand and have the ability to, to, to build what should be very intuitive experiences, particularly in industries like, for example, crews that have complex product funnels. Uh, that was always something that we, we had a challenge with. And, and you know, for a lot of organizations, that's fine. They usually outsource that to um, you know, a design agency and so forth. But I find that um, regardless of whether you do that or not, you still want to have that that skill set in house, even if it's just uh, ancillary and, and sort of working in in a synergistic way with your outside um, agencies. But if you're looking to build, um, you know, a lot of uh, internal capabilities, that's one that uh, I would say you want to make sure that, that you have. So, um, and again, very, very much in high demand and very competitive, uh, very competitive to find really quality, top-notch uh, UI, UX designers, um, particularly those who have cross-device experience. Right, those are great recommendations, Rob. Thanks for sharing that. Um, in terms of kind of your sources of information, your sources of learning, Tell us, what are you following? What are you reading these days? What's, uh, you know, what's on your bookmark list? Curious to get your take on that. Yeah. Um, so, well, while I read things like from TechCrunch is one that I've uh, often turned to. Digital Commerce 360 is another one. And anything of interest that I come across when scouring the internet, as I often do, honestly, the biggest source for great information for me uh, and learnings come from um, great accomplished colleagues that I that um, work closely in highly innovative environments, 
and folks that I connect with on a regular basis, you know, folks like David Bernie at UC Digital, Matt Kajawa at Blue IQ, Jared Belsky at 360i, to name a few folks. These are folks that I highly respect who are very passionate about technology and marketing. And those are the folks uh, like them that I turn to quickly whenever I want to understand something deeper that I'm not, um, I'm not there yet, right? These are the folks that are typically uh, breaking through, uh, you know, innovative um, capabilities are on the cusp of, of emerging technologies. And um, I find that those conversations uh, in the short amount of time I have uh, with those yield so much more than, um, than many things that I read. But having said that, um, I, I'm a sucker for just reading about anything that comes across. So I'm always open. And in fact, uh, any recommendations you have, I'd love to sort of look at because um, I, there are some things that I'll read. And after a while, I realize, you know, this is fairly basic. Uh, but then again, um, there's always something that I come across that I, I hold in value. Well, the, 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 um, there's uh, a couple of books that um, I read early on that I thought uh, were, while well, basic, um, common sense approaches for people that want to get started in the industry. Uh, one of them was um, Don't Make Me Think. Mm -hmm. And that one is uh, all about sort of uh, for those folks that are particularly um, focused on their websites, uh, ensuring that they have uh, an approach to designing with very intuitive navigation, right? It seems obvious, but if, you know, one of the things I sort of um, come across more often than not is, is websites, especially from brands that have been out there a while that still haven't figured out a way to, to simplify their pathing uh, into their funnels. Mm -hmm. uh, they seem somewhat um, disconnected in terms of the product merchandising. And I think um, many times I get frustrated and I, and I think this is you know, now 2021, um, this should be a sort of a basic staple of, of what people need to do. So, so that book, I think for those that are, um, you know, that feel that th that's an opportunity for uh, their websites, one that I, again, I read a few years ago, but I think is still relevant uh, in today's world, especially um, with, uh, with mobile, right? Where there's very limited real estate and you need to optimize that. And then another one along the lines of optimization is um, a book I read a few years back by a guy named Chris Goward called You Should Test That. And it's really all about this, we talked about this already, this experiment, experimentation culture, optimization culture that I think everyone should have. Uh, and it's really uh, about testing everything. I mean, everything from your images, your colors, your navigation, your call to actions, your headlines. Uh, you know, you can take different approaches to do that. You can, you can MBT your testing. You could do A-B testing um, in many iterations. Ultimately, um, it's about test, test, test. And uh, as I alluded to with Jim, Jim Collins, you know, that's the principle uh, that's been longstanding uh, even beyond in the analog world, which is, um, you know, take, take small steps to validate what you're doing. And then uh, once you've calibrated, then, then start scaling. And I think um, that book speaks to it very, very plainly, very easily, uh, especially for those that are coming into uh, you know, this, this area and don't have all that background. Great, absolutely. Is there, you know, those are great recommendations. And um, in terms of a book that you always recommend to others, 
do you have one in particular that really stands out and why, why do you recommend it to others? Um, I think, um, you know, one that comes to mind beyond the, those two, those are the ones I uh, uh -huh. recommend, especially for folks that are getting started. But uh, one that sort of comes to mind is um, the, uh, uh, what's called the, um, I think the rise um, of Amazon. Mm -hmm. the, the, uh, yeah, the everything store actually. Oh, yeah. And it's, it's uh, Jeff Bezos and the age of Amazon. That's what it is. I read that one um, again a while back, and I, I think it's interesting only because of the what, what Amazon sort of represents from its initial roots and selling a book, books, right, uh, 20 years ago, 20 plus years ago, uh, to sort of become this logistics technology company that has morphed into a number of different, um, you know, business opportunities. And what that culture and what that, uh, you know, what, what, what those um, early sort of learnings and their sort of evolution and their investments, uh, when at times it seemed, um, you know, uh, strange uh, for some of the things that we're doing, how it's all sort of connecting now to some of the things that they're doing now. So that, that was an interesting book. Again, I'm, it's, it was interesting for me just because of what Amazon represents, right? It's one of the companies that I think have shaped e-commerce, right? The largest uh, online retailer uh, and what they've done along the way to make that really work, right? So, you know, if you look at it, you can order a candy bar that costs $1.50 and get it delivered to your house. You know, how do they make money off of that? Well, there are, there are ways that they take that simple um, process and, and while they may not make a ton of money on the actual sale of it, the data and all the things that go with it um, get monetized in different ways. You know, the consumer behaviors they collect, all that stuff to me has been really uh, interesting and fascinating to sort of see evolve over the years. Um, and, and, and I think that's a, a book that I think helps you understand that better. Oh, that's great. That's a great recommendation. Definitely going to check it out myself. And for all our listeners, we'll make these titles and authors available in the episode notes so you guys can check them out as well. Rob, can't thank you enough for your time today. Very insightful conversations. Great outlook on a lot of different perspectives. Much appreciated. Going to stay in touch with you. And we're going to do another episode, you know, later this year and see how much has changed, what has transpired. And looking forward to staying in touch. That sounds great, John. I appreciate the opportunity to come on your show. And uh, I thank you. Thanks so much, Rob. We'll talk soon. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Ivy Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to our RSS feed on ivypodcast.com and all major podcasting platforms like Spotify and iTunes. As always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a rating on iTunes.